Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for joining us on Heritage Events Live. We're delighted to welcome you to revolutionary technology for U.S. dominance in space. Please welcome our host, John J.B. Venable, Senior Research Fellow for Defense Policy at the Heritage Foundation. We hope you enjoy the program. Thank you, Catherine, and uh, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. It is my pleasure to bring you into a panel with three incredible experts as we discuss revolutionary technology for U.S. dominance in space. As most of you know, space is a growingly contentious environment, and our dominance as a nation uh, relies more and more on what is now an inseparable bond between civil, commercial, and military space programs. This morning, we'll explore the dynamics of emerging space technology and how we should foster the development of leading-edge capabilities from all three perspectives. And to have that discussion, we've got three strikingly handsome and wicked smart space experts with us this morning as they join us on screen now. And please do, gentlemen, let me tell you a little bit about them. Joe Lorente is a, the founder and CEO of Ursa Major and is the definition of a rocket scientist. He actually designed, developed, and fielded several engines and spacecraft, including SpaceX's Dragon spacecraft, Merlin and Merlin D vacuum engines, and the BE-3 engine that rocketed Jeff Bezos into space yesterday in Blue Origin. I'm not sure if you've got a thank you note from him, Joe, but you should have. He founded Ursa Major in 2015, and his company is on the leading edge of techno technical space solutions. His team has developed and, and tested America's first oxidizer-rich staged combustion engine, the Hadley engine, at two world-class test facilities. And he has a team that has grown to more than 100 employees to make that happen. Justin Johnson is a senior vice president at Meta Aerospace, a cutting edge defense and space solutions um, that works ISR services and all the way down to multi-mission electromagnetic technologies. And in the previous administration, Justin served as the acting deputy assistant secretary of defense for space policy. He has served as the Deputy Chief of Staff to the Secretary of Defense and as the Special Assistant to the Deputy Secretary of Defense as his lead for space issues. And in that role, he was the head of a working group that wrote the proposal that established the United States Space Force. And finally, the strikingly handsome Steve Rodriguez. He's the founder of Defense One Defense, a strategic consulting firm that leverages machine learning and wargaming to accelerate non-traditional technology from the commercial sector into the Pentagon. He serves as a board uh, director of a, uh, or advisor of multiple high-end organizations, including the Atlantic Council and the Naval Postgraduate School. Steve is a life member of the Council on Foreign Relations and previously worked on the defense policy teams of the Romney and Jeb Bush presidential campaigns. And if you want to get him talking, get him talking about special ops uh, in his days as a younger man. For this morning's overview, just real briefly, I'll spend the first 30 minutes helping these gentlemen with, with my questions, and then we'll see how well they respond to you all kicking them in the shin. So please take the time to go over the right side of that bottom panel over there of your screen and start typing in your questions now, and, and we'll pick them up on the fly. With that, why don't we dive in? 
Steve, my first question is to you. How should DC policymakers view the growing list of emerging space technology companies? Many of them seem to be so far out there that from an outsider's perspective, they would consider them science fiction. Could you talk a bit of, from an investor's point of view about the companies that are leading the charge, the things they're developing, and the technology's potential in our national uh, defense strategy? Well, JV, thank you very much for hosting the event, and thanks to Heritage Foundation for showing leadership on this type of thought leadership. Um, it's great to be on a uh, panel with so many friends as well. And I, I think to your question, it's important not to tie this to science fiction or to uh, you know, even pop culture, what we're dealing with, what we, what we saw yesterday and last week, I believe, with uh, Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin. But I think it's important to tie everything back to the national security strategy and what effects or benefits that government investment or private investment can leverage, at least you know, sitting here in Washington, D.C., like Justin and myself and, and JBR. So with that being said, when we look at technology itself, uh, space technology included, it's important to think about it in terms of one of three what we call waves in the investor community. And this is what I think a lot of people in the government miss is they'll see a high-end uh, space technology company uh, you know, get, get released through the Defense Innovation Unit, get funded through AFWorks, or they'll see it in pop culture, and they'll think, oh, wow, think of all the wonderful things we could do with that technology. The problem is, is we, it really is a function of a building what we might call a space industrial base that can support those technologies as they emerge uh, um, over the horizon. And think about it this way. Right now, we have a vibrant defense industrial base because of consistent government spending throughout the years, and also because we have major primes, the Lockheeds and Boeings and Raytheon, or I think now it's Raytheon Technologies of the world, um, that then manage these large programs and integrate what they call major service or major system uh, providers that then integrate the small business contracting community, right? So in many ways, it, it's kind of a, uh, a pyramid of uh, contractors all supporting each other up to the top where you have the major system integrators such as the, the ones I just mentioned. So the reason why I'm telling you all this is when you think about investing in new technologies in the space industry, it's important to think of that in the same, uh, through the same lens of analysis. So with that, you don't get an emerging space tech company, say brand new, right out of the garage or off the launch pad, without having a fully functioning and wholesome or fulsome uh, space industrial base. And that includes the Blue Origins and Virgin Galactics and SpaceX's, and of course our, our friends at United Launch Alliance um, at the top of that pyramid as the new kind of space integrators. Then you layer in uh, the what you might call those. Uh, that's the first wave. Then you might have a second wave of the Ursa majors and others that have launched several years ago and are now becoming increasingly well-funded. And only when they fully solidify and strengthen do you have an industrial base, a contracting base, to support all these brand new small business innovative research uh, awardees that uh, you see in the news from AFWorks and through 
the Defense Innovation Unit. Without them, you are in, in effect creating a, a space industry that is totally reliant upon government spending and only government spending. And the problem is, is that's history and evidence has shown that's simply not enough to build out an industrial base that's going to get us Star Trek and Star Wars, depending on what side you're on. No, completely agree. And I, I love your analogy with the, the pyramid that this, uh, the, the technological spike that comes from the government and the infusion of funding, if you go back a couple of years, uh, the Obama administration, when they canceled the, the, the moonshot and the, the, the rockets that were being developed to take us all the way to Mars, they promised an infusion of about six billion additional dollars. And over the course of the next three years, they actually reduced that by six billion dollars. So a net twelve billion dollar loss in thought. And so we have to be prepared, I think, to to uh, to bring in funding for organizations like Joe's. And Joe's, you know, from from your perspective, how do policymakers uh, make the Defense Department and the U.S. government as a whole a desirable cu customer for your innovation and and companies like yours that are on the leading edge. In, in other words, how do they convey confidence, the genuine confidence required for investors to expend the time, effort, and capital required to develop products down a, a national defense path versus them yeah. off and sending them a commercial path? Yeah, thanks, JV. This, this ties very well to, to Stephen's answer. Uh, we're seeing, everyone's probably seeing the headlines that we're seeing more and more uh, private investment into the space community. So it, it's imperative now more than ever that we find a way for the government to leverage that and to really steer these companies like ours and, and every other small small space company that's on the market right now toward the end goals of the Department of Defense and, and other federal agencies. So for us, uh, I think what we've seen is these organizations that Stephen mentioned, AFWorks, DIU, they've done a really good job at sparking those the early interest of small companies. But these companies need to see a path toward uh, larger production contracts, uh, higher levels of monetization, because in reality, the competition of the federal government with these innovative companies is the investor base, the commercial market. So uh, without without the right signals, companies like ours steer more toward commercial and further away from from the U.S. government's uh, incentives. Yeah, I, I, and it would be natural that they would do that. So let me turn to Justin, because Justin, you just left the, the government, the, the Department of Defense, and now you're in the commercial sector. So your your perspective here is really a great one. Not, not too long ago, if you'll remember, General Hyden, the Vice Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said he was happy to allow the commercial sector to lead the way for facets of cutting edge space technology for uh, DOD and its development. How should we think about the role of space technology and the research, development, test, and evaluation hurdles required to bring it to fruition for the great power competition? Thanks, JV. Um, first off, I'm going to just echo uh, what Steve and Joe have already hit on. Um, but I think what I would like to do is turn that question around a little bit and say, you know, let's compare our, our ecosystem, our national security space ecosystem to what China's doing. Right, they've got a command economy, so they they can run a plan all the way from you know the highest levels of PLA government down through you know commercial companies uh, into developing and you know it looks like there may have been another Chinese uh, 
space plane tested in the last week or so. Um, so they have this ability to control everything and move fast and you know knock down bureaucratic uh, barriers, uh, and they're doing it. I mean, I think you just look at what they've done over the last year uh, in space alone. It's really impressive, and it's uh, I think we should be concerned uh, with what they're doing. That's that's not to say that's not our that's not how we should respond, right? We don't we don't have a, a global a command economy like that. We need to be instead, uh, focusing on uh, how do we leverage and grow uh, the innovation that's happening. I, I firmly believe that the U.S. space uh, ecosystem can out innovate the Chinese space uh, ecosystem, uh, but this the gap that you know Joe and Steve have already mentioned is. Uh, getting from that innovation, you know, into the hands of the Space Force or the NRO or the Department of Defense. Uh, and that's, it takes a holistic, big picture thinking um, from all the, the, the national leaders of the national security space. Well, fantastic. So I'm going to ride you a little bit harder here, uh, Justin. Um, it, it, the, the seed corn that goes into RDT&E very often comes from the commercial sector, but recently, in the last two or three years, you've actually seen some development that's come from NASA funding the RDT&E efforts of, of the commercial sector, like the CubeSat, Rendezvous and Proximity Operations, RPO, that will inevitably lead to Space Force employment. What does DOD need to do to accelerate the development of that leading edge technology? And with its track record, how much of that should be developed by DOD itself? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, um, first off, I think DOD, Space Force, NRO, they need to be clear about what they want, right? They need to articulate, here's what we're trying to do in space. Here's the force structure we're trying to build. These are the capabilities we need to uh, develop over time provide those clear signals to people like Joe who are uh, innovating and thinking about hard problems. What are the hard problems that are Space Force unique or NRO unique? Um, and then I think number two, I think the DOD needs to be clear about what they're even maybe if not clear, at least working towards being clear about uh, what are they gonna buy? What are they gonna rent? What, are their, what do they want their allies to buy and rent? Uh, you know, are they gonna? We don't buy rockets anymore. We buy, we rent. You know, uh, access to space. Uh, there are places I think where by the space force renting something, you know, buying a service essentially uh, makes it easier for allies to to bridge onto that capability as well. Uh, and then that sends a signal for for the industry to go after and, and chase. So I think it's it's it, it's hard. Uh, otherwise, space force and NRO would have already you know done this. But we created the Space Force for a reason, and one of those reasons is uh, to provide more thought leadership and clarity about where we need to go as a country from a national security perspective in space. Right, that rent or lease option, you know, we, we are riding the backs of commercial launch, but you're seeing that across several other different portfolios, like communications providers and the likes. With Starlink, DOD now tapping into that commercial network of satellites and others that are providing um, high-end resolution imagery, like HiSci, um, th those companies really do provide a great service. But the question is, will that service be available to us when push comes to shove and we go to war? That's the question, and how will that go forward? Steve, I I'll turn to you as an investor. Uh, what do you feel DOD misses when it comes to the intersection of military innovation and venture capital? 
especially when it comes to space technology. Well, you could you could say it, it's okay to to suck. It's uh, what DO does. What DoD does poorly is they they um, at the programmatic level tend to suck. They just suck over a long period of time. Uh, and what I mean by that is. Uh, when it comes to space, or even the early test, you know, JV, you're a you're you're a former Air Force officer and a and a pilot, if I remember correctly. You know, the Air Force did the same thing. If you ever seen the right stuff, they used to crash planes all the time. They lost dozens and dozens of test pilots. Same thing with uh, the space industry. When Elon Musk went out there with um, the uh, SN uh, Falcon 9 and the the SN series, and they were trying to perfect the belly flop landing. The way they, what, you, what we might call in the defense world, the milestone A, was all about failing and failing very, very quickly. But at the milestone A, in other words, in the layman speak, you know, very early on in the product development uh, life cycle. Once you get beyond what we call milestone B, and I'm sure JV, you or Justin can comment more in depth about what that actually is uh, from a programmatic perspective. Once you get beyond milestone B, you can lock in on the program and focus on tweaking the fine or fine tuning uh, you know, the program you're working on. But be, before that, it's all about failing and failing very quickly. And that's precisely how um, the legend, I would, I, I should add, of Elon Musk and SpaceX uh, came about because they failed and failed very, very quickly a number of times, almost to the point where it bankrupted Elon Musk. Uh, it, it's interesting, often in these uh, venues, you'll hear people talk uh, euphemistically about um, <clears throat> how we need more people like SpaceX and Elon Musk in order to have innovation in DOD. And I kind of scratch my head and I say, well, that doesn't really scale um, because you're basically relying on a billionaire coming down to his or her last uh, check before they're bankrupt personally. So if that's your model for defense innovation, I would suggest you, you do more homework. From a, an investor's perspective, and to your point directly, JV, it's important to think about government and commercial investment dollars in terms of buying up or buying down types of risk. And this is an analogy I've used before, I've written about. When government R&D dollars are thrown at a problem, the question they're trying to ask with those greenbacks, right, with which with those dollars, is uh, can I buy down technical risk with those severe or you know small business innovative innovative research dollars? Um, so when they're throwing money at a problem, uh, they're trying to buy down uh, the technical execution risk. In other words, if I give if I put money against this, will it work or will it not work, um, or will it work better? Uh, with my dollars. The problem at the conferences and events like this where you'll have a, someone from the government who writes those checks and so, an investor you know, on the same panel is everyone nods and is like, oh yeah, we're talking about investment. And my response is no, no, we're not talking about the same thing at all. Because commercial investors throw money at a problem, not to figure out if the thing works or not. They're trying to figure out if I give you my money, can you uh, go from selling 10,000 units to 100,000 units uh, more quickly than if I didn't give you any money at all, right? That's the basis for venture capital. That's called buying up market risk. In other words, is there a buyer for this or is there not a buyer for this? So you see the difference? 
buying down technical risk or you know does it work or does it not work versus buying up market risk you know uh, is there a buyer for this or is there not a buyer for this so this is where I, I mentioned earlier we talked about national strategy and even defense industrial based policy this is where the government can help provide a coordinating function right you're never going to tell Andreessen Horowitz how to spend their money but by providing a common level of understanding policy you're actually able to help unify those types of uh, risk that the dollars are being used to address. So I love the answer. I, you know, if you go back and look at what happened to Musk, he was his first three launches were failures, and if the fourth one had been a failure, he'd have been out of business. And so this fail and fail early has a limit to it, doesn't it, Joe? When you uh, are on the point of a company like yourself what's the tolerance for investors like steve to oh, go in and go oh that's good you failed again go that's great where do we go just five years ago uh, government space programs didn't attract many of investors turning that bot process on its head has allowed the u.s to leverage private capital in early high-risk research and development phase of, of these companies as, as steve was talking about how can we make government facing startups more attractive the capital infusion from the private sector? Joe? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think Stephen already helped me answer that. Uh, if you look back, as you said, five years ago, really the, the door that Elon helped break down was the risk tolerance. And particularly in aerospace, legacy aerospace, that the, the values or the virtues that you think about are reliability, low risk, uh, really stable, steady growth. Uh, and venture capital and investors are looking for mega returns they're looking for high risk posture high level of uh high level of innovation so it, it's pretty, pretty pretty contrasting and i think what elon showed was there's a route to these government buyers if, if you look all the way back to that falcon one flight four uh there, there was interest from the department of defense from the intelligence community and obviously two two or three years after that they they signed a large nasa contract as a company of 400 employees so I think it's it's really important to continue to bridge that gap between the investor base and the ultimate customer here in the U.S. government by showing a bit of risk tolerance and um, building these programs in a way and these companies in a way that they they are incentivized to continue to innovate. And uh, something Elon said a lot in those early days is he wanted to build a company, a hardware company that acted like a software company. They they continually had better products. They were failing often and uh, ideally what that results in is a better product for the end user in the US government. So I think it's important to identify those areas and and continue to invest there. Fabulous. Justin, let me turn to you. Uh, how, do you how should the US Space Force think about the role of commercial space from both a satellite launch perspective and a services perspective? Yeah, thanks, JD. I mean, I think the, um, it's a bunch of things, obviously. Uh, it's not a simple problem. I think one of the challenges that they face is uh, if you're a single program manager or you have a, a certain mission that you're responsible for for the Space Force, uh, ideally, you want a competition with a couple providers uh, that can that can scale, right? That can give you, whether it's you know, SpaceX giving you 50, 60 launches a year or, uh, you know, someone else providing Maxar, providing uh, EOIR from space at scale, right? And a lot of the innovation is happening 
small, right? So you've got a company with 50 people, 100 people, something with a really cool idea that you may have 100 of those small companies. Uh, and so for the, for the space force, for the program manager, for the acquisition executive, that's the challenge. You know, that's the challenge. How do you manage? Uh, you want that new tech, uh, but you need to scale. And to get the new tech, you have to have a relationship with 100, you know, hypothetically 100 companies. Um, but in the end, you only want one or two to actually scale because you can't manage 100 companies at scale, right? So in in that tension, um, I think is where you know, Space Force again. I mean, not, not to be a broken record, but I do think there's um, they've got to think smart because the U.S. space economy is the Space Force won't exist, right? Uh, won't survive, or won't at least won't thrive uh, without a vibrant space economy here in the U.S. So it's in the Space Force's interest to encourage those hundreds, hundreds of companies to grow, uh, but they have to to do it in a way that uh, allows them to manage uh, not hundreds of individual contracts, but less than that. Um, I think that gets back to what I said earlier of you know, you, there's certain things you want to buy, there's certain things you want to rent. There's certain things you want your allies to buy or rent, um, and thinking through that on a mission basis, on a uh, technology basis, um, and JB, like you said, there's there's different capabilities. Uh, you know, only uniformed folks should be in flight, right? And so companies uh, don't want to be uh, exposing their assets to that risk. Anymore. Um, so trying to think your way through that, it, it gets it's really hard. It's really complicated. Um, but I think that, that's the key sort of set of issues that the Space Force and the NRO and everybody else needs to be working on. That's a fabulous and very fascinating time for space in, in the United States. If you go back to 1903, there was one aircraft manufacturer in the United States, really, the Wright brothers. By the end of the 20s, we had more than two dozen uh, fighter manufacturers. And now we're down to two and one major supplier of engines for uh, our, our, our jets that are actually being purchased right now. And that company has a great deal of leverage over the government, uh, over what we can buy and, and what kind of price they're gonna give us for those. So it's really winnowing those, those down where you can actually feed them business, that limited number of companies, but still keep the competition at foot where you're actually getting more and more for what you pay for. Challenging. Steve, this is a great area for you. DOD has provided seed capital and follow-on investment funding, SpaceX, uh, Musk Starlink, and even uh, foreign private companies like ISI for their, uh, um, their imagery. Uh, while this gives the US government access to the follow-on fielded technology and a free market, it will also give our peer competitors access to the same systems in a time of war. At a policy level, what agreements does the United States government need to strike with these civilian companies to ensure um, we have access to those assets for U.S. national security in a time of crisis? I think first off, we have to start with industrial-based policy. So current national policy is characterized as protect and promote. In other words, certain technologies we need to be protecting, shielding from external uh, market access and especially external investment. Uh, other technologies uh, should be promoted. That means these are American technologies like a Ursa Major, uh, 
you know, and then <clears throat> dozens of other companies like them, those should be promoted in terms of the government investing in them to maintain that enduring capability uh, to ensure that it's actually there when we need it. So I think it's important to think, get setting that aside, right? So you have the national level policy out of the way. Okay, great, all set. Um, the big challenge is we don't really know what we should be protecting or promoting. Um, you'll have people say, oh, well, there's a classified annex somewhere. Well, there probably is, but it's rarely updated on a regular basis and it's likely out of date um, you know, every quarter based on the venture capital investing ecosystem alone, not because someone's not doing their job, they're just not able to do their job fast enough. Uh, at a, uh, on an iterative basis to ensure that the list that we should be protecting and promoting is actually accurate. Um, once you move beyond that though, you run into a dynamic that I think uh, Joe and Justin were highlighting and you know, we have some friends that we co-invest with, uh, Seraphine Capital that just did a massive SPAC uh, based out of London. They're, they're a heavy investor in space to include uh, ICI, I think that's what they're called. Uh, um, that's a synthetic aperture radar uh, uh, technology. I think when we think about government, um, you know, I'm sitting here in DC. So when we think about uh, the government right outside these windows here, helping a company like one, like some of the ones in um, Seraphim's uh, portfolio, I think it's important to think about <clears throat> and kind of segment uh, category, what we call in the venture world, category leaders by subsector. So what that means in practice is not every single technology, and I think DIU has done this fairly well, not every technology has to be kind of an, at the F35 level of kind of major um, uh, acquisition program scrutiny and rigor, and, and, which tends to correspond with those 20-year cycles to, to get that capability in the field. I think when you're talking about launch and speaking of monopolies, the heavy launch market uh, is is a literal monopoly. Um, that's why companies like Ursa and, and many others are trying to break that monopoly by moving up the value chain from the kind of low or light to medium to heavy thrust to actually give the government uh, and the commercial sector optionality when it comes to getting these large rockets in this space. Um, but I think rockets are one thing payloads and sensors might be a completely different thing. And you're much more likely to see compelling technology coming from overseas, coming from Israel, coming from the Middle East, coming from especially Europe in those kind of sensor and payload areas. Uh, and I think it's very, very important to take a nuanced acquisition view with those types of technologies, because you're not talking about building giant gas tanks you know, that are going to get fired in the lower orbit. You're talking about software technology. You're talking about sensor technology um, that should, I would argue personally, um, should have a lower threshold for um, acquisition scrutiny. I think one final thing is we want to think about our industry partner uh, strategies as well. A lot of these companies don't either have the capital, uh, nor do they have the interest, frankly, nor do they have the ability to get cleared and get on certain bases themselves, especially if they're coming from overseas. So then the question has to be, will you just tell them, hey, you know, go pound sand. Uh, that's, you know, my speak for it. Don't bother working with the US government. Or do you try to think proactively about how you help them 
uh, onshore into the U.S. government market, working with, say, a major launch provider, a major system provider, um, like the ones we mentioned before. So I could go on all day about that, but I'll uh, stop and you know maybe Justin or Joe have other comments there. Yeah, that's that's great, Stephen. I, I I think on the launch side particularly, you're right to separate launch from sensors and data acquisition on the on the on orbit side, but. I don't think it's a major change to acquisition policy. I think it's it's acknowledgement that the the capabilities that we're looking to buy here in the U.S. are going to change, and launch is a great example of that. We we went from every satellite is a 20-year, really costly program, single satellite that you're going to put on orbit for a long time, to small satellites. Uh, these are things that need to launch more frequently, and you can take a bit more risk that technology needs to change quickly. So. I, I think it's just continuing to assess what are the capabilities that we need as a nation and who are the players that are, are likely to solve those problems and uh, how do we bring them into the fold if they aren't that F-35 level of maturity? And I think the one other thing I would add, um, Stephen, is I, I really think we need to think about this not just from a U.S. only perspective, but from an allied perspective, right? We've got, yeah. Uh, some cool things going on in other countries that really should be uh, part of the fold. Um, and got to think about that holistically. And I think the other, just sort of to re-up something Joe mentioned earlier, but I think it's relevant to this part of the conversation is uh, sort of the, the Elon Musk quote about uh, software versus hardware, you know, building a company that upgrades like software. Uh, DoD doesn't buy software very well, right? And so how do you, but, but I love the idea. Right? How do you set up a system where you know Joe's company or whoever it is can say, you know, we want to continually spiral the new technology in, um, not just sell you something that you own for a, a decade, right? And that's, I mean, just to close the loop, that pushes you back towards leasing and renting as as models versus just buying things. But um, yeah, I, that software mentality, I think, is really interesting and what's driving a lot of the innovation in the private sector. Ladies and gentlemen, it's obvious I've lost control of this conversation. These guys are all over the, the place. I, I want to uh, ask you guys, they handled all of my questions like they were softballs. So if you've got a tough question for these folks, please throw it into our system and uh, type it into the window and I'll get it right away. I've got one or two that are hanging uh, right now that I'll hold off on for just one more minute. Joe, I, I kind of want to uh, turn this same conversation back to you. As you know, we're, we uh, selected aircraft from the U.S. Uh, airline industry are contractually committed to augment the Department of Defense airlift requirements during emergencies. It, the program's called uh, the Civil Reserve Aircraft, Air Fleet, or CRAFT, uh, from an entrepreneurial perspective. What would be an acceptable expectation for the space assets um, uh, in a similar emergency, what would be uh, what would be reasonable? That that's really interesting. We've we've never really, as a nation, had a fleet or a hangar of rockets that can launch on a moment's notice. Should we need to replenish orbital assets? So I don't think that there's there's an equivalent today. But I think that the most important part there would be ensuring that we, as a, an industrial base, have the ability to assess any of those needs that might arise in an emergency. So um, if if this is a, if we think we need to launch a, a large rocket, maybe a constellation on a moment's notice, we need to ensure that we have the ability to stand up and launch on a moment's notice. And 
there was a great example a few weeks back where a SpaceX launch was scrubbed because uh, a small civilian aircraft flew within something like 50 miles of the launch pad. So it's going to be impossible to have an emergency reserve of capabilities uh, without seriously assessing what are those needs that we need, uh, what are those needs in times of crisis. Number of launches that are, are taking place across the, the civilian sector are pretty enormous. So I think SpaceX this year will launch something like 30 rockets into space on its own. So we're really nearing that point where we've got almost an on-demand launch capability. Um, Justin, it looked like I cut you off. Were you going to say something? Well, I was just going to jump in. I think the uh, what you're hit, hitting at and what Joe's pointing towards is resilience, right? How do we, at, from a space force perspective, uh, or from a national security perspective, uh, what does a resilient space architecture look, look like? And that's that's been one of those questions that that comes up, you know, repeatedly over time in the space ecosystem. Um, and it's really hard, right? Because even if we have SpaceX launching every week, uh, it takes time to integrate payloads onto those things. It's it's not as easy as just saying, hey, next week we're going to change what's on that rocket. Um, but then you've got you know smaller providers, you know, the, the Virgin orbits, the you know. Uh, you know Rocket Labs, folks like that, who are, you know, can, can do things pretty quickly as well. Um, but again, it comes back to Space Force has to make resilience a priority. They have to figure out how do they send a demand signal that industry can organize around. Um, and, and I don't think that's as clear as it could be or, or needs to be to really drive resilience. Steve, anything to add? I think I think we do need to think. Uh, this is where I, earlier I mentioned the you know, this isn't sci-fi. Like this is real-world stuff that needs to be grounded in in national security, um, national security strategy. <clears throat> one one kind of new way of thinking I'd like to put forward uh, was up until recently firmly the the thing or the in the realm of sci-fi and that is shifting our base of operation <clears throat> for getting stuff for exploring space getting stuff into space from terra firma right earth into low earth orbit as the base for um frankly space exploration um throughout my life i've always been kind of bothered when people say we need to get back to the moon or we need to go to mars and i would always say well i mean i i, I mean i guess i mean it Look, it's you know that's cool and all, but why? Why spend an ungodly amount of money even to get to Mars today? Like it will require a stupendous amount of money to get to Mars, and for what? So we can be the first person on Mars. Okay, well, I mean, I'm all for national pride, but why would we do that? I would argue that companies like Ursa Major, companies like uh, Varda and Hadrian, that are focused much more on additive manufacturing of complex materials not just taking plastic polymers and making a you know little business card holder um companies like icon 3d as well uh now give us the opportunity to <clears throat> get out of basically the killer economic paradigm we're in now which is where we basically spend 90 percent of our the cost and the weight is just getting our butts off of terra firma and into low earth orbit so then it begs the question 
why not move in the in the low earth orbit and then use that as the launching pad where you don't need a, an incredible amount of thrust in low earth orbit the big challenge is actually decel deceleration so you actually you need fuel not to go you know do what elon musk does and have a little the little counter showing how fast you're going it's all about how fast and how you can leverage physics to, to stop because there's something to stop you in space what uh, is powerful though is there are there is strong evidence that using 3d manufacturing using um uh space refine capabilities to refine materials water carbon in space actually gives you the ability to, to truly establish bases of operation in low earth orbit and further out into our solar system so i think to shake things up a little bit this is literally on our near-term horizon this capability so i think it's outstanding that we're getting 30 spacex launches um a year now that blows my mind but what i'm really excited about is to what end great can't at what point can we get critical mass up in the uh, orbit and then from orbit then continue to explore versus this kind of up and back up and back up and back up and back um it doesn't make sense economically and it certainly doesn't make sense in terms of any kind of continuity of operation uh that will allow us to explore the stars JV, you're muted. Thank you for that. Um, so I'm going to turn to the audience uh, real quick. And just in this first question, uh, I'd like you to take on, if you would. Will the U.S. continue to have a monopoly on providing services by satellites such as GPS, television, and telephone? Uh, JV, thanks. Short answer is no, and we don't today. Right. I mean, the U.S. Uh, GPS is. Uh, the world's largest uh, service, right? Billions of users around the globe. But we're not the only one. The Chinese have a system, the Europeans have a system, the Russians have a system. Um, so that more broadly called PNT, precision navigation and timing. Um, that's, you know, we don't have the monopoly. On the other uh, types of services you mentioned, uh, that's already, uh, those are all commercial, right? So it's, it's companies, whether it's SpaceX or uh, SES or, you know, there's a, a bunch of these commercial space providers that are already up there in geosynchronous orbit, primarily uh, providing services around the globe. Um, and the DOD rents, you know, uh, SATCOM uh, in the Middle East and around the world um, from companies like that. Uh, I'm not sure about the TV. I'm not sure if uh, military, uh, the, the military channel is over DOD satellites or, or commercial satellites, but obviously most of the commercial elevated over the door. Oh, fantastic answer. And I really enjoy the loss of those monopolies because that means our portfolio is being diversified. Uh, you know, Starlink is actually doing PNT right now in thought uh, as a backup to GPS, which is a really good thing uh, should we go to war. Um, so let me uh, go, Joe. Um, how can the Department of Energy and the National Labs work with companies like yours to make things happen? That's a great question. We've seen the Department of Energy uh, taking taking bigger leaps into space here, particularly around things like nuclear propulsion. So uh, I think encouraging the Department of Energy to look at some of these earlier phase Department of Defense organizations, DIU, AFWorks, NavyX, um, or NavalX, uh, these organizations that are able to quickly identify and seed uh, capabilities within startups is a great starting point. We, we've talked a lot about how to get to these bigger programs and how do we find 
how do we move things past this valley of death that startups face? But starting with that early phase seed contract and uh, really inciting capability at these companies that uh, can show their investors demand from another organization within the U.S. government, I think that'll be a big deal. Any, anything to add, guys? All right, well, here is another question from the audience. Is it worrisome? Is it worrisome from a national securities perspective if these private companies slash billionaires are seeking broader commercialization of space rather than just supplying these capabilities to the government? Any thoughts? Justin? I'll take a first go, but I mean, certainly about the other guys. I don't, I mean, one, I don't think so, right? I think. Uh, I, I'm much more worried about what Russia and China are doing in space than what SpaceX or Blue Origin are doing. And, and candidly, SpaceX and Blue Origin are both contractors for the U.S. government, right? So they have an incentive to, they're American companies, so they have an incentive to care about what America cares about. And part of their funding comes through uh, the U.S. government. So, um, you know, sort of setting headlines aside, uh, I, I think it's a, a net very positive thing for the U.S. that these companies, SpaceX, Blue Origin, you know, et cetera, are based here in the U.S. They're driving the innovation. They're driving down the cost to get to space. You know, they're building things that just revolutionize uh, life for every American, not just on the national security side. Um, so, yeah, well, long story short, I, I think it's great. Yeah, Justin, I think that's... Oh, you go first, Jeff. I, I, mine will be quick. I, I think that's that's a great response. I mean, we've we've talked about how much SpaceX is going to launch this year, how much it launched in prior years, and uh, I, I might get this wrong, but I, I think I looked at it pretty recently that last year was the third year in a row China had more orbital launches than the U.S. So even though if you took SpaceX out of that question, we'd probably be at a third, maybe a quarter of the number of launches of China. So I, I think we need to continue to allow SpaceX and Blue Origin to move in their commercial direction, or or even if it's just personal ambitions from these founders, they, they need to be able to move in that direction while uh, operating as government contractors, because we certainly need them in the industrial base. Joe, did you want to yeah. back cleanup? I, I was just going to say, the way our industrial base operates today um, is based on government clear government demand signals or ones from government being DOD or Congress that funds DOD um, <clears throat> that they respond to. They will literally not do anything else if the government doesn't tell them to do so. That be why, not because they're not patriotic, but it's how their business model is built. So Lockheed's not going to build the F-35 just on its own for kicks and giggles, right? This is a long process that they continually look to the government to fund and any kind of change, any kind of change results in a change order package that then causes, um, you know, Lockheed in this case, and any contractor, it literally is any contractor, to then work on that specific request. This is why government research and development is at 1.5 percent, and everyone always complains, oh, you know, DoD or contractors don't spend any money on R&D. Well, the, they're not supposed to. They're built to respond to what the government asks them to do. This is why what Bezos and Branson, uh, you know, and Elon are doing is so important because they're building this stuff, whether the government asks them to or not. 
that gives us that awesome resilience that uh, Justin and Joe have been talking about. So I think it's absolutely critical because otherwise you're only going to have folks building stuff that the government tells them to build. You have no ingenuity, no in innovation uh, otherwise. Yeah, I, I love this whole discussion and it feeds into our last question for the day. We're approaching the end of our 45 minute segment. We're actually running a little bit over, ladies and gentlemen, but if you have questions, we still submit them and we'll do our best to get you answers directly to those questions. Uh, but this idea of being able to have confidence in the government and knowing that what they ask you for, if you actually sally up to it, that they're going to buy it. The, the F-35 is one of those where you're watching this gray area come back and forth with regard to confidence. And so this question right here is a good one to end with. The Space Force, will it? the Space Force have a fleet of space vehicles someday? like the Air Force has a fleet of fighters and bombers. Justin, you want to uh, kick that one off? Absolutely. Uh, short answer is they do today, right? I mean, they've got satellites that they're operating, that they're flying. Uh, there's not people in them, um, but there's you know scores of satellites up there that the Space Force is responsible for. Um, if you've got interesting things like the X-37, uh, you know, demonstrator tech development pr program, um, you know, and then Sierra Nevada is out there. They've got their space plane you know, that I don't think the Space Force is buying right now. But there's, I think there's some, some potentially interesting things uh, down the road. But I think if, uh, you know, the, the question I've asked over and over is, you know, the Army has their brigade combat teams, maybe has ships that they count and sort of build their fleet around. You know, how does the Space Force design their fleet or their force structure or their force design? Um, and I think there's some interesting answers to that um, around mission and around orbit, maybe. Um, but uh, short answer is there's the Space Force is in space today, and they're they're going to only get stronger up there. Anything to add, guys? Anything to add? Yeah, just a quick tag on. I, I think if we're looking at these, these assets, uh, what the Space Force could really seek to leverage here, especially with the commercial players, are, is launch infrastructure. Uh, it, much like we've got, be it ships or bases, uh, the launch infrastructure side is an enormous capital investment that these commercial companies, even if they're majority commercial launches, will seek to avoid. So that, that could really be a, a quick and easy way for the Space Force to um, you know, maintain a, a, a tight relationship with these commercial operators. Fantastic. Steve, anything to add? Uh, no, thank you, JV. It's been great to be a part of this. Well, I, I cannot thank you enough. The, you, you three are just fabulous, and we'll have you back uh, to, for more discussions in the future. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your time with us this afternoon or this morning leading about into the afternoon. Grateful for your participation with the questions. We'll do our best to get answers back to you in the days that come. You will have the opportunity uh, to get an, uh, an email and a survey on this particular um, panel discussion. We'd love your feedback. If you would be so kind to fill that out and give it back to us. And, and with that, um, that's the end of our, our time together. Uh, Steve, Joe, Justin, hats off to you all three. Really enjoyed the discussion. Thanks, JB.